Hello, this is Brian from Living in the End Times with Amos and X. As always, thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please be sure to follow us on social media. Give us a favorable rating on the podcast app of your choice, say CastBox or Podcast Republic. And most importantly, support us through Patreon at patreon.com slash endtimespodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash endtimespodcast, one word. And thank you in advance.
That was a terrific song. Yes, yes, sir. I never heard that. This is Jen Buxton. Can't get right. Is a Jen uh, an American? An English? Where's she Australian? Well, there, there you go. Yeah, I liked that one a lot, man. Yeah, me too. Um, she's uh, inspired, I think, to to degree my Australian bands of choice, Camp Cope, and then Beck Stevens. Um, yeah, they they're just they're just better at rock music than we are now. Uh, <laughs> it's songwriting and everything. It, everything. It's which is fine with me. Yeah. Like that was. I mean, nobody's heard of her. Mm-hmm. Um, like th- that, her page, this Jen Buxton topic page, has 15 subscribers, and I'm one of them. Oh my goodness! Um, and so I just found her by digging through like Camp Cope's archives and stuff. Uh, but you know, I mean, people are saying now that Melbourne has the best music scene in the world. Wow, uh, which is pretty cool, except for the fact that I can't fucking go there say, because that's... it's like 600,000 miles away <laughs> it's farther away than the moon yeah um well road trip if you if you find the cash yeah the exactly so anyway but on that theme of like i mean part of why most of her songs are amazing anyways but i think for our purposes uh what we're talking about is just like how worthless millennials and gen xers are politically um and this and we're counting ourselves amongst that crowd. yeah we're, uh, we're worthless yeah <laughs> maybe that's obvious uh, absolutely we are uh, i don't know if it's obvious um but like the so we should just embrace it and hand off the baton to the next generation who's the only effective political actors of the last 40 years are these climate kids apparently um who have organized like what may turn it hopefully quickly turns into global general strike waves mm-hmm. uh to try and force the government around the world to like get their shit together uh like every i was saying off mic like every time i hear greta thunberg talk i'm like in tears because i can uh, for whatever reason like if something is real, like actually inspires hope for real, like I can sense even intellectually that, and then it like makes me really emotional. Like not that many things make me that emotional, but in a in a spontaneous way like that. But mm-hmm. that whenever I hear her talk, it, it it always does because she's like, she, I mean, by her own admission, almost incapable of bullshitting. Mm-hmm. So even when she's asked kind of banal questions, she's just very direct and to the point about how dire everything is and why it's important and why it's worth doing. Um, and it's inspired these kids around the world. Like on Democracy Now!, they're interviewing some of the organizers for the global climate strike on, I believe, September 20th. Uh, Greta, as we've mentioned in a previous episode, sailed to the U.S., um, and just arrived this week. And so they're interviewing some of the organizers for this. And like the head organizers for like fight for the future, New York's NYC are young women, like re- like young women, like 15, 16, whatever. Um, and again, they have more, they have more clarity and more principle than almost anybody I've ever met in, you know, 
Gen X or Y on the left. Like, there are exceptions, but honestly, they're fucking better at this than we Mm -hmm. ever were. Like, as much, and, you know, I hope, hopefully, they're just benefiting from our failures, um, you know, at best. And that's fine. I accept that. But I'm sort of, I'm heartened by the fact that my prediction has been right since 2012 that the only future for the left is led by women. Um, I'm not heartened by it because I was right. I'm heartened by it because the reason that I thought that the only hope for the left was that is because it was, and these young women have figured it out really quickly mm-hmm. um, in in a context that's more perhaps conducive to change, maybe because Trump is Trump and has destroyed the fucking political system in terms of decorum, in terms of whatever. Uh, and Bernie's pretty radical climate plan, uh, his version of the Green New Deal, will become feasible maybe entirely based on how effective these kids are. Mm-hmm. And they've been pretty effective so far. So uh, that that gives me a lot of hope too. But yeah, as far as... Well, you know, it's I said we should disenfranchise boomers uh, systematically, and I still believe that. Maybe we should... Maybe the rest of us should also be. Maybe X and Y too. Like in the sixties, they used to say, "Don't trust anybody under 30. Now I'm like, "Don't trust anybody under twenty five. Maybe I don't know twenty. It's it's hard to say anymore. But the younger people are, the more radically progressive they are, and communist probably. So, like the hope. If there's hope, that's where it is. It's not. Um, it's not going to come from like. It's not going to come from the established left. We didn't do fucking shit for 40 years. I mean, like, again, I was saying off mic, like, since the civil rights movement in the in the West, there have not been any serious protest movements that have made any significant gains, like, in mass. Like, the only exception would be the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa, but... I'm not sure we can even call that the West, um, maybe in a kind of general sense, because it's Anglophile, but and short of that, like, and it's always like people don't really want to talk about apartheid, anti-apartheid anymore. I've noticed because the ANC was fucking communist and that's why they won. So I th- I'm pretty sure that's the reason, like, you had always this sanitized version of Mandela that was presented right. always post facto, never the communist militant leader, Nelson Mandela overthrew his brutal system of apartheid. No, it was, you know, he was for human rights. Um, Same with Martin Luther King, of course. Right. Who wasn't wasn't communist. It wasn't communist, but definitely was by today's standards. He's a, he would be considered probably a militant Leninist Marxist um, because he thought that we were in involved in a class war. um, And that that was, he was almost a class reductionist at the end which in a positive sense of like understanding that labor struggle and poor people's movement and anti-imperialism were all, all of the same piece, which is your basic Leninist position ultimately. Um, so, well, if I can mm-hmm. interrupt, I don't, um, so also off mic, you mentioned um, not only the failure of the left, um, you know, Generation X and Y, which I totally agree with. And you were sort of lamenting, too, the fact that it seems these 
supposed comrades, these folks you considered allies or consider still in some ways allies or they claim to be leftists and so on, how it's it seems like uh, it's it's not clear to you that they are listening to each other and some of that sort of unwillingness to listen to each other and sort of take each other's ideas seriously and disagree with each other as comrades. Um, th that unwillingness to disagree is sort of resulting in the part of that overall failure. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was going to, and so I didn't push back, but I asked, you know, is that your experience with organizing sort of all around the country or is that just kind of a Midwestern thing, which is a, our, um, our experience here up in North Dakota. And the reason I ask is because I saw the, you know, there's some, some hub or some website where you can either initiate or find, um, one, a general climate strike in the United States, right? And so I went on that to look for one near us, and, you know, guess what? There's a thousand of these potential strikes being organized around the country for September, whatever it is, and there were zero in North Dakota and zero in South Dakota and maybe none in Minnesota, I forget. Mm -hmm. um, no, there was probably something in Minneapolis, but in any case, so that example plus this other example uh, sort of prefaces my question. I was... Um, to the Greta Thunberg stuff, I keep trying to convince my, you know, teenage children from the Grand Forks, North Dakota, saying, you got to get into this Greta Thunberg stuff. Hey, when are you going to organize a climate strike at your school? You should just walk out. Like, I'm trying to mm -hmm. encourage them. And maybe that, you know, in some Freudian way, they're going to do the opposite then and not want to do what the, the father figure tells them to do. But they won't do it, right? Mm -hmm. And so between those two examples, I'm wondering, I asked you, is is this failure of the left or X and Y being totally worthless, which with a you know, a notion with which I agree, is that is that just a function or a result of the sort of upper Midwestern sort of niceness and unwillingness to be, you know, disagreeable in a formal context or in a political ways or in, you know, polite company? Or are you finding this is all over the... the well, I mean, show me the example of where the left has been successful right. in the last 40 years. Yeah, and I, I don't have it. So, mean, that, so, yes, it generalizes yeah. there. Like, I mean, I don't know empirically... You're asking me a question I can't answer. How would I know sure. if that's the only context I'm largely exposed to? How would I know otherwise? I don't know. Mm -hmm. But there's no the proof is in the lack of pudding. Sure. Um, like it's generationally different mm -hmm. it, as evidenced by how effective these climate kids are. That's not that's an option. Like, I don't know. I, I guess you're. it feels like you're, the question is a bit of a setup in the sense of like if you can just argue that I haven't been exposed to people mm. elsewhere, like, I mean, sure, but where's the proof otherwise? Right. No, that's, I'm not trying to set you up. I'm just, I'm just trying to posit, I guess, a different point of view. Is it, I mean, is part of the failure in this part of the region, at least, is it connected to that sort of conservative in terms of interactivity culture? Um, that's more it, opaque to me, honestly. Oh, like, sure. I, don't, I don't even know. Yeah, no. And I, I mean, so I was just going to say to your point, then if. So you were in New York, for example, in Occupy, mm -hmm. and if you were, would say even out there, it's been a failure And these people. I mean, that sort of that culture is much less uh, polite mm -hmm. um, than, say, the Midwest in terms of personal interactions and stuff. And if it's still a failure there, I mean, then there you go. That's well, I mean. You're extrapolating this in directions that I maybe am not even, I maybe am saying less than, uh, like I was in at OWS for a few days, but mm. so, I mean, did I feel more <laughs> well received there? I think so. Oh. Um, but 
you're referring i think i don't i don't know what you're referring to if you're referring to what we talked about off mic that's kind of like a different question i think uh maybe but because that would require me to call upon other people's experiences that aren't mine which i shouldn't do you're right and it's not fair yeah um all i'm saying is so i'm you're uh maybe you're trying to analyze the conditions of that and i don't understand the conditions Mm. i'm just relaying what i see in terms of like general dynamics uh on the left in the last like my lifetime and before that but all you know as far as where like i mean things are more active politically and part of that is again hopefully the result of our own failures uh to make anything happen like i i mean like if somebody let's say somebody is listening to this and they're 20 years old they don't they weren't really a there's no way they were really politically conscious at a time before Trump. Um, and this is a very, this is a highly politicized culture now, which in 2005 was absolutely not, uh, except in a general, maybe like war versus anti-war sense. Um, the, the left was very lost and had no focus. And, everything that we were trying to do around that time had a lot more to do with like attempting to pierce the kind of banal nineties neoliberal ideology and hopefully like create a situation where we could maybe start to talk of use the word capitalism in conversation. Um, Like Zizek has pointed out, it's like there used to be, like one of the big post 89 failures of the left is like, or losses was the inability to even debate whether or not capitalism was the way to go mm-hmm. sort of agreed upon everywhere that it was the last best system that we could come up with. Um, that's why he's saying everybody, even the left were ultimately Fukuyama they were just liberal democracy is the end of history period. That's not the case anymore. Um, but back then it was and so like i think that's why the left sort of attempted to sort of retreated into cultural studies and shit like that as well and self-care was because they just completely lost the footing to or perceived themselves as lost the foot as having lost the footing to say much uh outside of that and they cloistered themselves and like the joke used to be the only Marxist it's just 20 years ago, probably now the only Marxist, the only place you find Marxists are in English departments. Um, all of that. I mean, we were, we were left with nothing to start with in terms of mm-hmm. like a strong labor movement or like a leftist tradition. Like it's not like in the UK where you still have as corrupt and shitty and worthless as they are. Trotsky's parties are like, you have, like left-wing truly left-wing unions um or like in france or something here or even fuck even canada maybe to some degree um here that was all just systematically wiped out so we're starting from nothing but Mm -hmm. we still failed to do anything Mm -hmm. hopefully and that's what i'm saying hopefully our all our failures led to this like ultimately we did we succeeded in breaking through but not with any sort of plan or um 
party or whatever. Like, and I was probably, I think I've said this on the show. Like, I don't see DSA as a political formation. I see DSA as a cultural formation. And that's okay because it, it creates a scenario wherein people can say that they're socialists unabashedly. Like, I used to get laughed at if I would say that I was a communist. Like, literally laughed at um, even 10 years ago. Now, that's not the case. It's not the same world. So, um, I, I'm not willing to reduce it to Midwestern niceties. Like I, I, I don't see, uh, I don't see a left. What I can say in my experience is like a lot of what would happen 10, 12 years ago would be like, like with students for a democratic society, for example, there would be this strange, like national, like convention structure and then local chapters. And, but I never understood how like an anarchist or quasi anarchist organization was taking fucking orders from on high about like, what are priorities for organizing? Like, fuck them. Who cares? Um, but it was just the same stuck in the same old party format that wasn't really being generated from the ground up. It was just this rehashed kind of like softened, communist party system that was almost like uh it was like a self-parody at some level and you know the like jody dean has said the biggest lesson of occupy was that the anarchist model was sort of defeated itself found its own limits very quickly at Mm -hmm. occupy that was the big failure i think and i think positively like that became that paradoxically opened the gates to start talking about socialism again, because anarchism couldn't justify itself as like a sweeping ideological um, solution to any problems that we have or plan or whatever. That doesn't mean all the anarchists went away, but I think in the U S what anarchists were the radical left for a long time for probably 20 years. Um, And I, I, it's my sense that that's largely faded from view and, not that I think again, DSA, DSA is not a party. DSA is not even a coalition. They don't have, there's no, they might have statement of principles. They might have agreed upon strategies, but that doesn't mean it's, it's, it's in no way unified and it's in no way. It's only effective where people have picked up that banner and decided to take direct political power, you know, organize around getting elected or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I support all that, but, it should not be understood as any kind of party. And so when I say failure, I mean failure to take power at any level or propose a solution that people can get behind. Whereas these kids are organizing themselves in mass, in a unified way with direct leadership without necessarily a top-down hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, again, in a much more effective and universal way truly universal way than uh, we've seen on the left since the civil rights movement. The, uh, I don't disagree with any of that. And I, the, uh, the Midwestern thing was, it made more sense in my head and off, <laughs> and off air than it did when it came out here. But I was just only going to ask again, kind of a rhetorical question um, in response to that, which is, and I think I know the answer already and you've sort of gestured toward it, but I want to ask it anyway. So, I mean, the only examples that I can come up with uh, in this country for sort of 
leftist sorts of things that did seem to get um, you know mass appeal or sort of reach the mass the level of sort of mass consciousness was again Occupy as you pointed out and I suppose the Standing Rock thing and I don't mm-hmm. I don't disagree that those were quote unquote failures at as such at the time of the you know when they those events were occurring mm-hmm. and again you have better, more experience with Occupy you know more that better than I do and we both were pretty not pretty involved but we had some contacts with the the standing rock thing mm-hmm. and so i'm wondering if there's a way of looking at those events as again in their failures have there been successes such as the rise of dsa and bernie sanders did that come out of occupy or you know ruth buffalo and these other american indian state legislators and at the federal level in the house that sort of came out of that in the last in 2018 or something um is that fair, or I mean, are those successes out of failure? Or is it just you'd, you'd separate them and say no? The second thing is new, even if the preconditions were created by the failure or something. No, I agree about Occupy turning into Bernie Sanders, mm-hmm. like because, as I pointed out before, like Mike Davis had written this, had done this big write-up post 2016 election where he was uh, analyzing all the. Mike Davis is like a socialist uh sociologist <clears throat> analyzing like county by county like kind of looking for trends and what happened in the election with trump and everything and he was very critical of occupy saying it was like just these rich art school kids you know fucking around or whatever and what pissed me off is that like like you know two paragraphs later he's like but strangely uh out of the blue, in 2012, half of young people identified as socialists. And it's like, well, what the fuck happened? What do you think happened, dude? Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, Occupy opened the sort of broke the ideology open in that direction and allowed, like I said earlier, allowed that to emerge. Standing Rock, I'm. Standing Rock's a very opaque phenomenon to me. Yeah. Um, you know, like you said, we have contacts where, like, inside and like for a long time and it just seemed like that it was just there were a lot of let's say dark interests playing games with who was doing what when and what was allowed and who was telling who to do what and where was the money coming from and who was getting the money and what was the function of that money and like that is not to say I oppose what happened or whatever. I don't really know. I think that's like a very opaque scenario to me, like what went down. And I mean, there's been some good work trying to expose some of the like tactical and strategic failures. Um, But I, as far as drawing like conclusions from that, it's very, it, that one was very weird. Like, it seemed at some level to explode out of nowhere. Um, and it seemed to draw support from a lot of different corners of the world in lots of different ways. I do think, like, I think the most um, amazing part of Standing Rock, again, this is just from the outside, but the way that, like, these indigenous tribes from across the world were sort of like acting in solidarity in a kind of federalist way to send people to North Dakota to try and stop the pipeline. I think at a formal level, 
and I follow Mark's form is all that really matters. Um, that's extremely important. And there, there's a sort of hidden history of anti-colonial struggle hidden from mainstream understandings of history. Like if you watch that Oliver Stone's untold history of the United States, it's like, it's fucking mind blowing. A lot of what goes on. Um, but one of the things that had happened in the sixties was you had that type of organizing happening. You had this kind of post-colonial Congress where both indigenous tribes as well as like leaders from like, you know, oppressed peoples in like, you know, colonized places were getting together and trying to like act collectively. Um, and Peter Howard, who's written extensively on Haiti, uh, and on like leftist philosophy, he's referenced the Che's desire to create a tricontinental, basically international, um, which is serving a similar interest. And so I think like there are these threads of these kind of echoes of history in terms history of the left that were kind of emerging within some of the tendencies in Standing Rock. But then, you know, there weren't, I think like one of the big lessons, at least again, this is just from sources inside was that like a lot of the NGOs were just using it as a way to fundraise and get exposure. And so ultimately like it was a lot of money moving around and not much, not as much concern for like, the people who are getting their skulls cracked by the pigs or, you know, getting fucking hosed down in sub freezing temperatures, like those people doing frontline shit and who are covering it and who were doing medical stuff. Like, I don't think those people were cynical in that way, but there were a lot of, a lot of the shit on the periphery was seemed fairly corrupt uh, or at least questionable. And it's, it was unclear as to whose interests were being served and why whereas with something like occupy like sure there was a there was some money coming in but it wasn't much and even that little bit of money ended up poisoning the well in terms of trying to like create something that could sustain itself mm -hmm. um and standing rock is weirder than occupy because i feel like with occupy there was still this with occupy it felt like the temporality got disrupted um and I think that was probably true at Standing Rock. But I feel like with Occupy, that part of it, and maybe it's just the fact that like Standing Rock wasn't asking people to do occupations elsewhere, so it was more centralized. Um, whereas Occupy had occupations in every major city in the country, maybe in, in many, like a thousand cities in the world at one point, um, or at least Occupy force. groups. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we were we had meetings. We weren't doing an right. physical occupation. Nevertheless, um, and so I just Standing Rock was very opaque to me as far as like what how people saw themselves acting and what those purposes were. And I think there was a lot of um, my understanding from, again, sources inside is that people really did believe their own rhetoric about we're going to stop the pipeline. And from the outside, it was hard to believe that people believe that perhaps they did or it seems that they did which i think unfortunately since it's kind of a generalized call for specific action it's very vulnerable to manipulation by outside groups with 
you know, and outside money primarily, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't, but I, that's not just to be clear. That's not to say that I think the people who are engaging in direct action were like, I don't know, not, I, I don't know, but I, I, my position isn't that like the people who are trying to actually stop the pipeline were cynical. They, I don't think that that's right. true. I think it's the opposite. I think it's the people who, I highly recommend watching Unicorn Riot's Black Snake Killers to get a more incisive view of like what actually went down and how the timeline played out and how these interests were kind of competing with each other internally. Um, but like when you have that kind of like it's it's similar it's very similar to like when you have a natural disaster and then NGOs come in and um, basically are just using it as a money money laundering mm-hmm. scheme. Uh, a really excellent film about this. Uh, it's probably pretty hard to find, but is it's one of the more radical political documentaries I've ever seen. It's called Enjoy Poverty. So this Dutch guy goes to the the DRC, the Congo, and he's his position is like basically. Well, first what he does is, um, he he finds these guys who are like wedding photographers in the in um. I can't remember the name of the big city there, but um, the Congo has like just been utterly fucking shattered by mm-hmm. all sorts of foreign interests and civil wars and all this sort of shit. Like it's just fucking nightmare. And there, there was a period there where like 10 million people were killed and nobody really talked about it. And so this, the guy who made the film, he's like an artist and he, he found these photographers who are making like a dollar a month like doing wedding photos for people or like glamour shots, their version of it with like very limited resources. And so he was like, he he sits them down in front of a whiteboard and he's like, okay, how much money do you make a month? And they're like, well, like a dollar, $10. He's like, okay. So doctors without border photographer, he gets $10,000 a shot for whatever they buy. So the way it would take you 10,000 months or a thousand months to make this much money. So you're better off, trying instead of taking pictures of like people being happy you need to start taking pictures of people being miserable because you can sell those and so then he so he goes and he and he's doing this sort of in a almost like a borat type of like he's trying to be intentionally very naive about this to expose the cynicism of the system so he goes and he finds like these doctors without borders, this crew of doctors and stuff. And they're about to leave. And he's like, why are you leaving? So all these people are still sick. Why aren't you treating these people? And they're, they just won't listen to it and they leave. So he finally, he manages to get a meeting with a guy who runs doctors without borders. And he's like, these guys, look, these guys have these black Congolese guys have pictures of people suffering that you use to raise money. So can buy that buy it from them why are you only buying it from white photographers and he just like threw him out of the office basically and so like um and then it shows these really kind of grisly scenes where you see what happens behind the camera or for all this like misery that they're Mm -hmm. taking pictures of it's all these it's literally these white photographers just taking pictures of fucking dead bodies on the side of the road Mm -hmm. and like all competing to get these shots and then, you know, he's he is like asking like these UN people who are putting up these tents that don't really work or whatever, 
Like how much do you get paid for this? And how much do you get paid to do all this? And what is this helping? Like, and they can't of course answer any of this. And then he's also like implicating himself. Like I'm just doing the same thing they're doing, exploiting all this, but he's obviously got a different relationship to it. And the thing that was like giving me fucking nightmares about this movie was like, he was also like hanging out with these desperately poor Congolese people who are like getting paid to clear land, to grow palm oil, to send to the U S but they were getting paid. They're ba- They were literally, they were like slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was kind of trying to explain the guy like, you can't, he's like, I'm not trying to like make you feel bad, but you're the amount of money you make versus what you paying them. You're literally never going to, it's impossible for you to ever get out of this situation. And they showed like, like, these are people who are having to eat fucking grass, you know, and kids who are so hungry that they can't sleep and they're crying and shit, like showing the real horror of all this and how it's perpetuated by the West. Um, So again, like this is a pretty, it's, it's harrowing to watch, but it's very instructive about like how exploitative really the West is in the guise of aid work and all that shit. So that's why people don't trust NGOs. That's why in Haiti, when they send rice, the Haitians will set it on fire because it's going to pollute the, like the explicit reason that they do shit like that is to feed people. But what happens is the Haitian farmers, then their crops are worthless. So they've they're flooded with all this food and then the farmers can't make any money. And so it keeps them in this cycle of poverty or like Tom shoes, for example. Um, there's another documentary I saw where they were talking about like how um, so Tom shoes makes the, you know, you buy a pair of Tom shoes and then they'll send a pair of shoes to a poor country. Mm-hmm. Well, there were real cobblers making fucking shoes in these countries who then were just put out of business because Tom's was just flooding the market with goods. Um, and they showed in this documentary, like the, if the West would play by its own rules and not manipulate, like the West subsidizes the farmers in the U S we massively subsidize farmers. And so we can grow too much food to feed the whole world. But then we flood it into markets that can't compete with those subsidies, Mm -hmm. which then destroys the local economies and keeps people dependent on foreign aid. And so like that, I think is like, I think standing rocks, a good example of what not of the problems faced by a development model that's based on Western dominance, because in the sixties and seventies, you didn't have all these NGOs going into Mm -hmm reservations and trying to take over uh, organizing where and which is probably why you had things like the american indian movement emerge where you have militant self-directed uh marxists who were scaring the shit out of the federal government because they had taken control of their own destiny all of this like liberal aid work oftentimes is just to diffuse or preempt that sort of thing happening so standing rock was interesting because you had something like red warrior camp where it was militants who were basically like not letting anybody else in. Mm-hmm. They're basically like, get the fuck out. They weren't telling people what they're doing. They weren't really communicating with the press. They were doing their own thing. Had they been sort of left to their own devices, they may have been more effective, but when you just flood there, so like the, the sort of powers that be, you know, directly or indirectly are using 
aid networks and NGOs to try and disrupt radical organizing. And you didn't have that problem with Occupy for probably a lot of different reasons, but it was like what we talked about before. Internal documents show that what scared the shit out of law enforcement at Occupy was not that people are getting out there and talking about radical ideas. It was that they were feeding homeless people and they were providing people with care and letting them them sleep there. Right. Yeah. Black Panthers. um, The, well, and, and to that point, like this is something I've realized is you don't get the black Panthers or the IRA or the American Indian movement without a welfare state. And that's not a criticism of any of those groups. It's to say these NGOs are supposed to replace a welfare state, basically. Mm-hmm. But what they do is they can manipulate s- supply chains and, and aid and um, in a way to crush self-determination. But if you just give people money, like, it, like again, like UBI or something, or on in, in the case of Ireland, Northern Ireland, the dole, if you just give people money and they can live off of that and they don't really have to work as much, well, they're going to figure out how to self-organize and become militant. In the black community, that was what's forgotten is there was a black working class who was organized, unionized and had a lot of money and a lot of re- a lot more resources than people realized. Not to say there wasn't obviously black poverty, but in certain areas, it was in certain urban areas where you had more relative black affluence, um, you had the the sort of condi- preconditions for more radical organizing. Um, and as we mentioned on a previous episode, like you had said something like about like I had mentioned something like this and you'd said something about that's why they keep us poor. And what I would have would have added to that thinking about it now is that's the explicit like monetary policy. The U S since Greenspan openly was, we need a, a precariat working working class so that basically they can't demand anything because they're too scared about paying too scared that they won't be able to pay their bills or whatever and so i think standing rock sort of demonstrated the the tragedy of how this aid model is applied generally um and it was just using the struggle the real struggle to try and save the fucking aquifers um, a struggle that I think Standing Rock is a letter from the future in a really dark way because that sort of climate struggle without massive unified solidarity and actions happening everywhere, you'll get that sort of destructive outcome where people people just like experience themselves as having failed, um, even though that failure was sort of baked in from the beginning. Could it? So bringing it back to Greta Thunberg and the sort of youth climate movement, could it be that I, I don't disagree that they're just better than us, that X and Y failed, but could some could some portion or percentage of their success, as we're seeing it right now, be um, attributed to that very fact that you're describing, which is that these folks being so young, they are not subject to those temptations of money flooding into the system that you and I are as adults who need to live with have a job like they don't need to have jobs as young right. women and so they like they can do whatever the fuck they want mm-hmm. right and they don't need the money too right and there's and so in a way they're immune to a lot of that stuff that created the failures of a standing rock or of an occupy or of a mm-hmm. um whatever a doctors without borders etc yeah i mean um yeah i think there's a 
I think that's true. And it's also been historically true of student movements generally. Sure. Like they don't sure. have, they have more time. Right. Or, well, they used to have more time because they weren't working. <laughs> right. And now they are working even when they're in college. Um, that's a good point because uh, sort of making a lateral move here. That's probably the real reason why there's been such an attack a neoliberal austerity attack on higher education mm -hmm. and making it so prohibitively expensive mm -hmm. to discipline students exactly before the fact so that they never organize because like when we were doing sds here from like 2007 to 2010 you're sort of at the twilight of a time where people could kind of afford to not really work that much mm -hmm. in school and not leave with so much debt right um and as we saw conversely with like examples I've given before of like the Puerto Rican example, the Chilean example, the Quebec example, um, these student, these emergent revolutionary movements came out of like student strikes and were extremely effective in different ways. And the legacy sort of carries on as we've seen with these communist lawmakers and parliamentarians in Chile um so yeah it's i think that but but the difference is the advantage i think that these high school kids have specifically is they they know how to use the internet they know how to leverage the internet effectively mm -hmm. and they know how to do that intuitively and those are tools we simply didn't have before so like yeah. if you're 16 in 1999 uh, you kind of have an internet, like you can talk to people on messenger or something. You don't have Facebook. You don't have Twitter. You mm -hmm. can't become, you can't become Greta Thunberg, 16 years old in 1999, because you don't have the ability to be retweeted by everyone in the world. You don't have the ability to get the president's ear, even if it's negatively, um, meaning he's like attacking her or whatever. You don't have the ability to do that that quickly because there's no digital decentralized well quote-unquote decentralized mm -hmm. infrastructure of information distribution like i think one of the things that uh is really important about like uh ray kurzweil is like a futurist singularitarian guy um technological singularity we talked about before i think but he he's pointed out that like once you get decentralized information technology authoritarianism can't really um sustain itself mm -hmm. Uh, I, I think you could probably argue that China disproves that, but uh, his point was like, he's like, that's what was like sort of the, the information, uh, like his claim is that the reason, the part of the reason the Soviet Union fell is because you had decentralized information tech in the eighties, but it wasn't the internet. You just had fucking fax machines and they could like, communicate with each other without government interception. So you could say they had a more form of physical encryption because there was just no way to the stasi couldn't stay stay on top of all that it was literally impossible um now so you could say well china doesn't have that because the government can see everything and we don't have that anymore. i mean that's snowden's argument is mm -hmm. that part of the reason he was so such like a, I don't think he'd use this term maybe but such a militant for the internet was because he was around in the early days when you had a level of freedom of information that's never existed in human history, where you could have 
people in chat rooms. You could have like a 14 year old kid talking to like a distinguished professor of physics and having like a real debate about X, Y, Z and people really learning from each other and really communicating with each other. Um, and you don't have that anymore. Like it's all filtered and it's all, um, manipulated in terms of who sees what and how, because these platforms are not public property and they're not outside of corporate control. So mm-hmm. curated, curated, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, in ways that we're not aware right. of. And so like, <clears throat> but there's still, like we talked about, like Twitter's probably a little bit better because, or maybe, no, I, I was sorry. I was having a conversation with someone else, but like, like, I think Twitter is better now than Facebook, even though Facebook used to be better because the format was better, uh, be- only because Facebook filters and manipulates everything. But Twitter is still used by journalists and famous people. So, like, they have a vested interest in people actually seeing what other people are tweeting all the time. Uh, not to say Twitter isn't filtering shit. Of course they are. They're they're manipulating shit too, but there's going to be more, it's harder to control just by nature what it is. Um, and so on that level, well, Trump's presidency is a good example of that. Even like Trump was like a, before Trump's rise, he was a game show host. He was kind of a joke. Like I knew people who, you know, were staunchly obviously opposed to all his politics, but they thought he was fucking hilarious. Cause he just trolled people all the time. And I thought it was, I mean, I was a little bit surprised sometimes by who would think it was funny and stuff, but I was less like, and this was in 2013, 14 or whatever, but like, that's what Trump did is he leveraged all his Twitter followers and then combined that with the ability to like be provocative in a way the media would pay attention to. Cause he, you know, he's the master of that, um, on TV and like, Trump is doing so Greta's sort of doing what Trump did the other direction mm-hmm. um and that's why she's been effective one of the reasons so yeah it's the the desperate horror of the fact that like now in college isn't even a place where you can go organize and like be crazy or just do whatever the fuck you want mm-hmm. be radical now it has to be high school is the only way it can happen because that's the last vestige of truly free public education. But if Bernie, if we get Bernie elected and he makes college free, their game's over. I mean, we will like, in some sense, all of the Fox news reactionaries are hundred percent, right? Mm-hmm. If Bernie's elected, we'll get what we'll have a communist country. It's the end of the world. for them. Yeah. yeah. Like they're not overreacting because something as simple as, reinstating what we effectively used to have, which is basically free public college because you could just get the loans forgiven or written off in the seventies and eighties. A return of that plus free healthcare. So kind of just like a basic welfare state. Nobody is going to work these jobs that they fucking hate anymore. Mm -hmm. Like for this money, it's just not going to happen. If people can, feed their kids and you know so do those things plus a ubi you're going to have you're just basically going to have like kind of like a basic civilization Mm -hmm. which to the reactionaries is communism um (laughs) 
And it is communist in a sense because of the free, relatively free flow of information. But the other effect of that is that people will be able to politically organize mm -hmm. exponentially. Like, like we're seeing nonlinear dynamics play out in the climate change. You're going to have fucking nonlinear dynamics playing out at a social and political level mm -hmm. in a very positive sense. Economic level. Yeah. Immediately. Right. Then everybody can go out on climate strike. Then you can fucking, you can change the whole goddamn world. So it's good that Greta's getting the footings in for something new because, and I, this is, there's no guarantee Bernie wins, unfortunately, but like assuming that he can and does, that will have kicked off this, you know, radical change. Like <laughs> I was having a conversation with some people and I was talking about how, I was just trying to draw a contrast between like, you know, somebody was kind of arguing from a centrist position. Like we don't want to piss people off. We don't, what about gun control? All these people want their guns and all this stuff. And I'm like, and what about all these Midwesterners? Well, and I was like, well, it's not like we're trying to abolish the Senate. And then people kind of got, they were sort of aghast that I would even say that. And I was kind of getting made fun of a little bit. And they're like, Oh, why don't we just have workers councils run everything? And I didn't like catch it at first. And then I was like, no, I'm not saying, we sh well, I think we should abolish the Senate, but I'm not calling for that as a strategy. I'm saying what we're proposing is much less radical than that because everybody already supports it. Uh, interestingly, this person sort of came around to like, oh, I guess we could do that, you know, because I was like, I was saying like, we could abolish the Senate with a constitutional convention, blah, blah, blah. Because this person was like, oh, yeah, you're right. The Senate used to be appointed rather than voted on. So it has been changed before. And then I was telling somebody about the NPL in North Dakota and how we had seceded from the the union in 1933 and how like the Democrats, neither Democrats nor Republicans controlled North Dakota politics for, until the fifties. And we have a state mill and a state bank, grain mill and state bank. And this person was just younger and had never heard of any of this. And then, so was very interested. And then I was like, so we can do whatever the fuck we want. Right. Like, it's all on the goddamn table. That's the first lie that we have to break with. I didn't say that to this person because I don't. Right. I didn't think that this person was lying to themselves. They just didn't know about it. But um, in terms of thinking these things through, like a Bernie presidency with a social with a social movement to back it up, political power to back it up, we really can do all this fucking crazy shit he's talking about. And mm -hmm. so we don't necessarily need to start out with like, we are going to do this. I recommend that that's a good perspective, but at the very least we should be able to say, we don't know if we can't. Uh, and with that lack of foreknowledge, that intentional naivete in a positive sense, it's from that perspective that we can sort of take the reins of something like Greta's proving, which is like, I just like, she said that, she basically just made a promise. She got really depressed when she was 13 because she knew how bad climate change was. And she's, she decided basically like, well, if we're fucked anyway, then I might as well try to fix things. And she like basically made a promise to herself. So she, again, she's principled, um, which is the most important thing because it allows you to do anything um, without fear of consequence at some level. And she's like, at that point, I promised myself I'd do whatever I could. And then I started acting and then I started feeling better. And she had some quote recently about like, yeah, hope is great. But what we need right now is action. Once you start acting, 
hope is everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> um, the left needs to shut the fuck up and just follow her lead because she's the only one who's got her head on straight, as along with all these other young women. Um, and you know, our our path forward in the U.S. is to get Bernie Sanders elected. Like it's it's do or die. Well, we've mentioned it several times before too. I'd only add that um, to the conversation we had off air about a, a conversation I'd had with a local mm-hmm. political leader. Oh, this Medicare for all, UBI, I mean, all this stuff, free college too. That's again, I don't know. I don't know if the fear of giving people federal money is overwhelms these, you know, the Fox News reactionaries. But in my mind, all that stuff, the Bernie stuff, that's that's economic development too. I mean, all the if people have that freedom, mm-hmm. they're going to create businesses. They're going to do the stuff they want to do, the products they want to sell. And, and and I think, I mean, it, it'll just grow the economy as far as we can tell in these pretty profound ways. And I don't, that, that message doesn't seem to get through to a lot of those, you know, folks like my parents or something and how, just how, how much better off the entire economy would be if we'd go in that direction. Mm, yeah, is, I think, oh, sorry. No, no, that's all. That's interesting to me and troubling. Uh, yeah, I don't think people like that are going to be persuaded. It's like, you know, again, if Trump is the uber boomer, and that's mm-hmm. why the liberal boomers hate him so much, or hate him in the way that they do. Right. Um, if that's true, then we should again take Greta's lead, or, you know, follow her lead when she's like, I think Amy Goodman had asked, well, somebody was like, asked her about talking to Trump and she's like, it's a waste of time. (laughs) It's a waste of time. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, it's a waste of time to argue, uh, on, let's see. This is a hard one lesson for me, (laughs) but arguing with people, Starting with where they're at mm-hmm. is a loss because you they're you're ceding all the ground to right. their assumption. Reducing yourself, your own position. Well, you don't even have a position yeah. anymore, basically. Sure. So yeah, reducing it to nothing. Um my experience is it's more productive to just be principled, know what you believe in, unapologetically argue for that. And then if people don't like it, that's fine. But you've already internally provoked them to ask a question that had never crossed their mind before. Mm -hmm. Um, And because the, like there, and this is another failure of the left in the last 40 years. There's this kind of evangelical disposition of sort of like political witnessing where, okay, where's this person at? How much room can I, how much wiggle room do I have with this person? How far can I push the needle? That does not alter the underlying uh, assumptions. And so, like, I think the best assumption is, like, you can't change people what they mm-hmm. think. But what you can do is you can provide them with a vision that they're going to accept or reject and just go from there. And then just try and, like Zizek called it, in a, like uh, the best sense of Leninist, Lenin's own writings in the sort of inter, like after the revolution, uh, how to kind of, how to sustain, how to keep power, but also try and like civilize a country. And his idea, which wasn't ultimately adopted, was in part to, 
he was like, basically, we could do, redo modernity in Russia because it's not developed yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but we could do it in a different, like in basically a progressive way. Um, what Zizek calls terms of principled opportunism. So like, this is what I, this is what I want. This is what I'm after. This is what I believe. That's not negotiable. How do I get there? And the the fake practical, fake pragmatists will be like, well, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to like talk to these people and get these ideas into their heads. No, the way you get it into their heads is you start acting like it already needs to be true. And you start basically, that's how you shatter the ideology because the ideology is fragile. If you treat the ideology like it has power, it reinforces itself. Mm-hmm. I might've used this example last time, but the Extinction Rebellion guys the the main guy was talking about how he he had tried for 20 years he's like i've done all the permaculture stuff i've done all the letter writing i've done all the petitions i've followed all the rules i've done all that shit none of it worked we didn't do anything we knew about this shit in the 90s we haven't it's none of its work so now we have to do civil disobedience we have to do direct action and then he talked about basically him and three people at king's college within 5 weeks got the they got the college board of trustees to move from yes we'll consider divesting from fossil fuels in 10 years if it's if it's good for our investors which means nothing mm-hmm. to completely divest mm-hmm. five weeks later mm-hmm. and he's like what's the difference we just we just basically stopped asking for permission um and so like the very important part about that is like he's accepting all those failures as failures and understanding that like that's not what changes things what changes things is just an unwillingness to compromise and uh a willingness to be arrested a willingness to like sacrifice shit that's all that people care about and for him he's like that's you know unfortunately that's the case like i don't like doing this i'm not i'm not prone to this but um that's why Greta's calling for fucking general strikes uh, because what else is going to do anything? Nothing. So like, I don't, I have no faith in people's ability to break with their own ideology as such, because like, it's the same. I think the best fucking example of this is again, the left's failure to perceive that Trump was going to get elected except, you know, basically like, people like us or michael moore who are like in the midwest and knew (laughs) knew how people basically really thought felt uh like why did they why couldn't they understand that because for them and it was more of the pro the problem was more on the just the generalized like liberal intellectual class side of it but like to them it was completely preposterous that trump could be elected president for us it's completely obvious that he would be because nobody else was paying attention to what people were actually going through. And the fact that he's Donald Trump and is a lunatic or whatever, I mean, that was the, the view or maybe still is the characters. Yeah. The character, uh, caricature of him. They couldn't understand him as president. That didn't, that doesn't fucking matter to people who are, when Hillary Clinton's telling them to shut the fuck up for six months mm-hmm. are going to tell her to shut the fuck up. Um, and so like, again, the proof that anything's possible is, is the negative, if you will, that Trump himself mm-hmm. was elected president. So like, 
if people are still holding on to, and, and they are like, I talked to one of the most, one of the most surreal conversations I've had in a while is somebody who is kind of like a, he's, a, he's my age. He's like a liberal Redditor <laughs> and he's, he's being intentionally provocative. Like, and he can be an asshole sometimes, but his argument for Liz Warren was basically like, if we get somebody normal, quote unquote, normal in there, things will go back to normal back before Trump. They don't realize that everything is on fire. Mm -hmm. They don't realize that Trump has burned the boats and that that the old world is dead. Um, but that's the fantasy. That's, I think, why they're still focused on Russiagate, still yelling about how Trump's like an, an asshole and a misogynist and all this. Not understanding that he's opened the door for Bernie to just completely remake, remake the world, literally. Um, and so, like, if if you're in, if one is encountering people like that, I think you should treat them like wounded animals. Just like, okay, this is your reality now. You don't, you're not even accepting where we are. Um, so I'm not going to try and convince you. I'm just going to try and principled opportunism, take fucking power wherever I can, kick open doors, and see what we can get done. They'll come along later or not, but mm -hmm. it doesn't matter because they were never politically active anyways. So I think um, that whole like evangelical model really, it's even a failure for the evangelicals. Like that project is kind of dead in the water mm -hmm. because the country's become more civilized at that level. People don't think it's cool for you to kick your fucking kids out of the the house because they're gay or trans. Right. And that's a good thing. Um, so it's it's sometimes a hard problem, especially if one is interacting with these people a lot. But I also think that, like, we have more power than... The paradox is we don't have the power to do that. What we do have the power to do is change the whole, <laughs> whole of reality because nobody's really trying to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and we can find, like in the old Maoist militant sense of like fight in the interstices of urban life. They meant literally with guns. I don't, I mean, politically we can exploit crevasses and find, um, you know, ways to blow the whistle on certain things and put pressure on people in ways that we can get a lot done with not much effort. Um, but again, the left doesn't see itself in militant terms. It often sees itself in evangelical terms that's probably our problem. And the uh and so paradoxically like Greta's not she's engaged in a, a Joan of Arc crusade, but she's not a theological thinker as it as such. To her this is simply a question of what the future is, but then she sort of like dialectically becomes a theological figure precisely by rejecting the the blackmail of salvation. So I think it's acting without the hope of redemption or salvation that frees us to not need to take everyone with us. And as a result, they get dragged kicking and screaming <laughs> whether they like it or not.